Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with my producer, David Yaz. Today's guest is a Red Sox legend, a Hall of Famer, Larry Lucchino, who served as president CEO during a historic 14-year period from 2002 to 2015. In 2015, he purchased Boston's longtime trip, or he was part of a group that purchased Boston's longtime AAA affiliate. He has moved that franchise to the city of Worcester and secured a 30-year agreement to remain in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Larry, thanks so much for joining the pod. Dan, happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you about baseball and your career. One of the things that we were just talking about before you came on was what was the inspiration for you to purchase that AAA affiliate and move it to Worcester? Why Why did you decide to do that rather than maybe uh, take over another MLB franchise? Well, I was getting up in years and I, the situation in, 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 in Worcester presented itself. Actually, the situation in Pawtucket presented itself and they were assumed to be without lease. And I thought it was terribly undervalued. And that was the reason why we went in that direction. I had a friend named Jim Skevington who wanted to secure a downtown ballpark in Worcester, excuse me, in Providence. And so the ballpark in Pawtucket was 78 years old. And so we needed a new one. And that was the, it's one of the things I do in my life. I, I work on ballparks. Yeah, absolutely. You've had five ballparks that you've been responsible for designing and or renovating. That's Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Petco Park in San Diego, Fenway, obviously in Boston, Jet Blue Park, and that's in Lee County, Florida, and now Polar Park. Of those five, which one do you think you put the biggest stamp on and which one did you enjoy being on the ground floor on? Well, I suppose it started with the first one at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I was determined to change the way we approached ballpark building instead of a, until that point, ballparks, football and stadiums and ballparks would go together and they'd make a series of architectural compromises, operational compromises and be a big, big ballpark or a small stadium. But it was, uh, we wanted to go back and have a traditional old fashioned ballpark with modern amenities. So we thought we had a chance to do that in Baltimore. I was inspired, I suppose, by Pittsburgh and the the ballpark in Pittsburgh that I grew up watching baseball games in, which was the Forest Field. And it was it was an opportunity that I had. We we, we sort of took advantage of it with with both both hands. We hired Jana Marie Smith to work with me on ballpark design, and we worked with the state of Maryland and. We came up with the ballpark with the terrific warehouse in the outfield. So it was always the thing that you always knew if you were in Baltimore. And so it was a, it was, that, that was probably the first, most important and most lasting and influence. Oh, I don't know. There were several dozen ballparks since then. Hey, Larry, producer Dave here. So I've used you as an example in moments in my career as someone who has refreshingly thought out of the box. And there's a story that's told, you can tell us whether it's apocryphal or not, that when you took over the Red Sox, you met with the entire staff in the organization and you started hearing these questions 
that were always answered with the word no. In other words, can can Fenway Park be rented out for corporate events? No, we don't do that. Can can the fans stay in this area during a rain delay? No. And as the story goes, you emphatically said, we're going to start saying yes now. Now, tell us. Yes, t- that, that is true. Okay. Yes, that is true. I said, we're in the yes business from here on out. We're in the yes business. So your first default answer should be yes. We'll do that for you. And yes, should be the answer instead of no. Is that something you'd like to be known for? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think there's an, an arrogance or a complacency about big time sports, professional sports that one has to fight all the time. And one way to fight it is to try to do the things the fans want to have happen. So yes, so we, 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 if you ask the people in, in Worcester these days, what's our philosophy of operation, they will say we're in the S business. <laughs> You're credited for saving Fenway Park by, by purchasing, being in that group that purchased the Red Sox and making those improvements and renovations all over the stadium. How close do you think we were to losing Fenway Park and moving the stadium? Well, we were very close in 2000, 2001, 2002. We were very close. In fact, of the four or five groups that were trying to buy the Red Sox, we were the only one that admitted to a desire to save Fenway Park. The others wanted a new ballpark. They had what I call an edifice complex, and they they wanted their their own new ballpark. And... And so we, but we wanted to renovate Center Fenway. Maybe it's because John Henry, Tom Warner, and I, who were the head of our group, were baseball insiders and have been in the sports for a long time. And so we had a sense of how valuable the Mona Lisa really was. And we saw the Mona Lisa in his Fenway Park, and we wanted to save it if it was at all possible. What we weren't sure is whether the good enough bones that it could be saved. But our presumption was to try to save it and make a series of renovations. And if we could do that and increase the revenue at the same time, then we had a, a win-win proposition. So we, we, we did that in about after a couple of years of putting in dugout seats and putting in grain monster seats and putting seats on the right shield deck. And we, we increased the capacity from about 33,000 to about 38,000. And they were high revenue, high quality seats for the most part. So, uh, well, we, we, we did that. We were successful in 2005. We announced that we had enough experience that we felt that the Fenway Park can and should be saved. And we were going to devote the next number of years to renovations each year. Larry, I have a, a friend named Mike. The story will make sense in a moment, but... If you if we rewind back to 2003 and the heartbreaking way that season ended for the Red Sox, my friend Mike said he was so incensed that he started emailing everyone he could think of in the Red Sox organization. And to his surprise, he started getting emails back from you that he discovered was not just from some underling, but it was actually from the actual Larry Lucchino. Now, I don't ex- expect you to remember all of this, but... He he actually developed a sort of pen pal relationship with you after that, according to him. Anyway, the reason yeah. the reason I, the reason that's quite possible, yes, because we 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 insisted on on responding to anybody who wrote us, particularly if they wrote with some kind of criticism. And we we, we were young and hungry. We were determined <laughs> to make this franchise really successful. And that's something that the old guard certainly wasn't known for, but 
is that a, another hallmark of the Lucchino era, if you will, that uh, you can right. embrace the fans? That's good business. I think that's good business. It's good business manners. You respond to someone who's written to you, and you you write back. And, and but baseball and professional sports seem to get a, away from that. I have something I call book note, which written up because George Bush. George H.W. Bush started me aware, making me aware of it. I sent her to people who do do significant things or have done something remarkable in the newspaper in, in the world. And, and that started us. So I think you probably find a lot of outgoing mail from the organizations that I'm with, particularly the postdocs. One of the, uh, probably the guy that you'll always be associated or linked to with the Red Sox, at least, or over a couple of organizations, actually, is Theo Epstein. And I always felt like in in your Red Sox career, it was kind of a good cop, bad cop thing where the fans just love Theo. And whenever somebody had to break bad news or get up in a press conference and talk about a trade that went wrong or something or a firing, you were always the guy to do that. Why did, did it just not bother you that it, the credit was going to Theo or how did you see that relationship and the well, way that I the- didn't see the credit was necessarily going to Theo as much as I saw it going to the organization and Theo was, was quite a good evaluator. And uh, that was what I was, what I was looking for when we made him general manager in 2003, he was very ambitious and very driven and, um, and so we took advantage of that, and he was a, a local boy, made good, so there was an inherently good story there, and he was from Brookline, and I grew up as a Red Sox fan. So I think that they deserve credit for the success of the team in, in 2004. 2007, we kind of won without him. In 2006 and 2013 was Ben Charrington. Right. 2018 was David Dabrowski. Yeah, Dabrowski, right. Do you think, um, it seemed like Theo was always conflicted as to whether what he he deemed to be the best course, which was developing prospects and kind of trying to build the best roster from within versus trying to build a championship contender by or filling seats and driving ratings. That always seemed to be something that was kind of at his, that he was conflicted over. It doesn't seem to be that way anymore. It doesn't seem like Chaim Bloom is is making those big acquisitions or feels the pressure to. Do you think because of Theo's departure, that was was the the I guess the value shifted, or do you think they just say now just build the best roster you can, however well, you see fit? From Theo Epstein to Ben Charrington, and that was a very high quality change. Ben was a had none of the ego issues that Theo had. And had but shared a lot of the skills that Theo possessed as well, and so we were we were lucky. I don't see the kind of sea change you're talking about happening. I think that's happening now as yeah. the owners are trying to run it like a business and make some money and trying to avoid long-term commitments if possible. So I think the change has been relatively recent. Larry, is, is that, have they made a m- mistake there? I, I, I don't expect you to trash your old friends or anything, but I imagine from where you sit, they're, they're outsiders might think you, you might be kind of relieved having not to deal <laughs> with what the current 
ownership is is dealing with. There are a lot of fans that are angry with the approach. What, what how has it been for you watching from Worcester? Well, I've been frustrated as well. I mean, at both ends, we we develop good young players like Jared Duran and Tristan Cassis, and well, we've got some other good players there too, David Hamilton. And so we, we lose those guys fairly quickly and, and we have problems retaining stars or have had in the last two years retaining stars. Part of it is because of the corrupt and I should say inefficient system that we have that has developed over the years through collective bargaining rights bestowed on the players. They had better labor lawyers than we did and they had more labor. They got more contractual opportunity. Than, than the clubs did. And, uh, it's, uh, and there's no evaluator to see if the deals are real. So there's an opportunity, particularly when you're dealing with 10, 11, 12-year contracts, to, uh, to falsely state what has been offered by other teams. There's no verification of that. And, uh, and so the agents take advantage of that, understandably, and call it negotiations. Do you think, I know that you were a huge advocate of expanding the game and making it more of a international appeal, expanding the market. There was a dice case signing. You were a big advocate of the World Baseball Classic. You took the team to Japan in 2008. Do you think there's any way that this ownership group is seeing the way that you can expand the market and how, how many more revenue streams you can open and they're saving to make a big play for Shohei Otani this next offseason? Well, I hope so. I think Otani is a rare talent and he would be a terrific addition, but a lot of, lots of teams recognize his, his ability. I think the, the number one thing in building and, and maintaining a solid franchise is having it appear and be real that the team is committed to winning. And I think that there is a, some more, some more things that the team has to do to show the world that it is committed to winning. And it, it is. John Henry is a real fan. And I think that the winning a baseball game is very important to him. And I think, but you've got to demonstrate it and not by letting your players go signing 10 or 11, 12 year contracts with other teams, but by, by keeping them and maintaining them with, with you. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Larry, for those that haven't visited the the ballpark in Worcester, tell our listeners why they should. Well, they should because it's the fifth ballpark we have done, and we learned a lot from the first four. There's an intimacy about that ballpark 
that is so terrific. We, we halved the foul territory and it was 37 feet, 37 feet in, in, uh, target and it was just about 18 feet in foul territory. And we, we have very transparent screens. So if you want a sense of intimacy, if you want a sense of beauty of the, the game of baseball as urban relief, I think you'll see that at that, at that ballpark. And of course, most every seat is a good one and the prices are, are affordable family entertainment prices. So I would urge you to go. I wanted to go behind the scenes a little bit. I know a lot of baseball fans always imagine what it must be like to be an executive or in the front office. Back to that 2004 season, obviously the Nomar trade is one that everybody still remembers and was just a historic trade for the Red Sox. What was involved in that trade? And did now when you look back on it, it sounds like Nomar almost made it easy because he seemed like he was almost forcing the trade. What do you remember about the way that that one went down? Well, I remember it the way you're describing it, that we were, we were not going to trade no more until we were convinced that he was not going to come back as a free agent. And we went to see him specifically to try to sign him to a long-term contract. Tom Warner and I went to visit him in Los Angeles and said, you're going to be a free agent this year. Are you coming back? And he said, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe it's time to move on. I don't know. So we got, we, we got a sort of an answer along those lines. And therefore we, we, we knew that we were going to lose them in September for a draft pick and that was unacceptable. So we made a trade and it was, a, it was a very tough deal. And once again, I was blamed, but it was a, it was a consensus feeling that we all had. Larry, just continuing on that, that 2004 season, Bibles have been written or so much has been written and said about it already. I mean, a city was was liberated. Grandparents hugged their grandkids and cried and all that. Are there particular moments from that season that you will remember and you will most cherish? Well, I think to look at 2004, you have to look at 2003. We had predicted that we would end the curse of the Bambino. It was the 14th inning when Aaron Boone did a home run off Tim Wakefield that cost us a chance to win in 03. And so we were really primed and ready in 04. And is there a moment? David Ortiz's emergence as a star was, was, was really terrific in 2003, 2004. And one of his clutch home runs certainly could, could answer your question. But I would say that that year was an, was an extraordinary year. But 2013 also rivaled it in terms of impact on me. The, the idea of a team adopting a city and a city adopting a team was so real in 2013 that I put it right next to and maybe just a shade below 2004. I, I do as well, Larry, for, for whatever it's worth. I, for, through circumstances I won't get into, I... I got to know a lot of the survivors of the the Boston Marathon bombing, and that was one that seemed to be a, a Hollywood written script to emerge from from that tragedy. Yeah. What? Yes. When? Yeah. When I was it was suggested that we do something to help unify the city, I said, "Well, let's get David Ortiz to speak. I wish he had a player speak to the fans and and say it." And our marketing director said to me, Larry, if you give a microphone to David Ortiz, chances of him dropping the F-bomb are about 100%. I said, oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. He's never going to do that in front of that crowd on that occasion. 
of course he did it very well and, and rallied the, the help rally the city. And it was, it was a special moment. You recall what the chairman of the FCC tweeted out at the time on that comment, right? Yeah. He actually said it was okay. That's right. He <laughs> was okay with it. And uh, because he, he saw the context in which it was said, yeah, and uh, and he said, uh, "Yeah, I've got no problems with it." Yeah, amazing. There never has a bureaucrat been so reasonable, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly. And that was right on the heels of the. Was that right after Bobby Valentine's? It was that was oh, 2012, yeah, it was wasn't 2012, it? Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. It was that made it even more remarkable. But yeah, that I wanted to go back to that Bobby Valentine season which obviously was on the heels of that chicken and beer season. And you kind of wanted to switch things up and get a fresh voice in there, or maybe even have somebody. A lot of people have said in the aftermath that Bobby Valentine was put there to kind of blow things up and make people uncomfortable. What was the, the, the mentality when you hired Bobby Valentine? What was, what was the thinking there? Well, thinking was that we needed a manager. It was December already, and we needed a manager, and Bobby was available. And we had an unusual, we had an unusual structure. We had a, we had a number of people who contributed to major transactions. So we thought we could control Bobby and he was, he got a, he had a bad deal here. I'm convinced because some of the players and inspired by some of the officials on the team were negative towards him right from the, from the get go. But the, the good thing is it led to Ben Charrington the next year the next year and Ben Charrington went seven for seven in free agents in the 2013 year. And, and we had the Boston Marathon bombing and just a remarkable, remarkable, unforgettable year for, for me. Yeah. I remember at the very end of that season with Bobby Valentine, this and then we'll, we'll move on to the 2013 season. But I remember he went on an interview on WEI with uh, Glenn Ordway. It was one of the most entertaining, but also bizarre interviews I'd ever heard. He initially, I think they asked him if his coaches were trying to sabotage him. And he said, yes, he, he thought that maybe they were. And then he started kind of like blaming traffic for why he'd been late one day. And it just sounded like he wanted to get fired. Do you think he wanted to get fired at the end of that season? No, I don't think so. I think that's reading too much into it. He had problems during the course of that season, only with the coaches and with the players, but uh, he uh, was some of the players, but he was, uh, he didn't get a fair shake. And I still have very fond feelings for him. And I know John Henry does as well. Tom, I can't say. Larry, tell us about your thoughts on the new rules, which I know that these these rules have been in the minor leagues prior to them being the major leagues, but some people are hailing them as really saving baseball. What do you think? Well, I think that the celebration is premature, but they are a step definitely in the right direction. The, the limitation on the shift should generate more offense. The stolen base is an exciting play, and the, the pitch clock, will have resulted in shorter games and a more intense game. So I think that we're often, we're often running, so to speak, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that, that this is a good start. They will, the issue with the one we've had good starts before, we never had one quite as, as, as good as what was the enforcement. The umpires uh, didn't like changes very much and made it more difficult, but I think that we've got a united front these days. 
Do you think they'll stick to the pitch clock in the pl- postseason? I've heard people say when the, all the, when the stakes get higher, they don't think the umpires will enforce it uh, strictly. Well, I think that's probably true, but I do think that they, the same rules will govern the postseason as govern the regular season. So there will be a pitch clock whether the umpires choose to enforce it is another, another question. Larry, tell us, as you look back, you mentioned the incredible rise of David Ortiz and, and those years are so fun to look back on. As you look back on your entire career, can you name a few other players that you really just enjoyed either watching or just being around? Pedro Martinez was certainly <laughs> right at the top of that list. He was a very bright guy and immensely talented and, and a normal-sized guy. And with a, with a outsized heart, he's a big-hearted guy. And he was certainly one of them. I think Jason Veritek proved to be a really solid contributing member to the Red Sox for years and years and years. And he, he was great. Fortunately, to go to other franchises, which is quite easy for me to do. I could go to Tony Gwynn in, in San Diego. And there are a lot of really good guys in San Diego. We just had a reunion of the 98 team. That won the World Series and, oh, excuse me, won the National League pennant, but lost the World Series to the New York Yankees. And we had the 25th anniversary reunion of it, of that team. And there were a number of really good guys on, on that team. Steve Finley comes in mind as the one that did whatever was necessary off the field, was on the field. Tony, Tony Gwynn, I remember going to the Doyle baseball school when I was in high school run by the Doyle brothers and Tony Gwynn was the one they always used as an example of the ultimate swing and every once in a while you see a stat about how Tony Gwynn barely ever missed the ball he barely ever swung and missed and you mentioned you mentioned Pedro you look at you go back and look at his stats during an, an era where the ball was flying out of the park just remarkable yeah I I agree with that by the way, I had a dinner party at my house in San Diego when I was there, and I had Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams there. And Williams, who was kind of a curmudgeon, as you probably do know, gave Gwynn a lot of hard time about his swing. He said, ah, it's 5.5. Anybody can hit the 5.5 hole. Turn, turn with some power. Let me see. Can you turn, turn with power and hit some home run? That's, that was Gwynn's view. Excuse me, Williams' view of Gwynn. Well, I suppose Williams could have been one of the only people on the planet that Tony Gwynn should listen to. However, (laughs) you're probably right about the advice. It's funny. You mentioned some of those guys that just thrived in Boston, and there seems to be some people who just have it in them to elevate their play. And then I think that's what makes being a front officer and an evaluator so hard in Boston is that some guys don't do as well here. I remember Adrian Gonzalez, obviously, and Carl Crawford being two guys that kind of struggled. I remember when that trade was made, you got credited for making that. And I was like, wow, how did he do that? We couldn't, they were huge contracts. And then somehow you were able to flip those in the middle of the year. How did that trade come about? Well, I'm trying to remember now. That trade came about because of a good relation with, with the Padres and the, and the, uh, and Dodgers, the right? Yep. Yeah, and, and but I don't remember very much about the dynamics of it. It was a long time ago. Yeah, uh, and but it was and it didn't work out as well because he did not have the it's quite the right personality for the team here. 
when I, I remember coming from San Diego to Boston, the first press conference we would have had in San Diego in a phone booth, there probably would have been two or three people here. There were 20 or 30 journalists. And I said, well, welcome to the big time. Well, Larry, I really appreciate you taking the time to catch up with us. It's been a remarkable career and it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Very, very, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Larry. This is our three up, three down segment with our producer, David Yaz. Three up, three down. Yes, Dan, as usual, producer Dave here has compiled three questions. And since your dutiful partner doesn't happen to be here today, (laughs) I'll provide my own thoughts on some of these questions, if you will allow that. Absolutely. Okay. Question number one. If you needed three outs from any closer in history in their prime, who would you call upon? I would call upon Mariano Rivera. Uh, I think the Red Sox got to him late in his career, but he was pretty perfect for a long stretch in his career. And that his cutter was just unbelievable that he could just throw that pitch all day and get it by people. He would be my pick for closer, any closer in the history of his prime. Yeah. Not only was he virtually unhittable with that pitch, but it also was frustrating as a Red Sox fan to see that he apparently was the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just it was just pure jealousy. And that came out that day. You'll probably remember this, Dan, at, at Fenway Park when he was announced on. It was the home opener for the Red Sox. He was announced. And as it happened, he had strangely blown a couple couple saves earlier that year before the Red Sox had played a home game. And so he got applauded. You remember this? So I thought it was the t- 2005 opening day when they were giving out the rings to the Red Sox, and he had blown the save. They in had the, four. Yeah, yeah so I, I thought that's what when it you was. Know what? It might have been an amalgam of both, or or you might be right, but but right either way, he man did he embrace the moment, right? He he, he was hilarious. Yeah, he waved to the crowd as everybody's right. giving him a, a wild reception. That was funny. The huge smile on his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Just to be different, I'll say Eckersley in his prime because those first couple years when Larusa made him into the closer, which if you want to either credit or blame someone for the 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 way the pitchers are used these days, that's that's probably where to start with Larusa. I'm not going to remember what year that was in the '90s, but Eckersley was almost washed up, right? He, yeah. he burned out of the Red Sox. He went to the Cubs. He wasn't so great there either, giving up the long ball. And But for a couple seasons, well, really more than a couple seasons, but for those first two, there was one season he walked four batters all year and had like 50 saves or something. Didn't didn't His, his career as a closer, I mean, didn't last as long as Mariano's because he started closing when he was in his 30s. So what are you going to do? I would have always liked to have seen Mariano Rivera as a starter. Like mm-hmm. I always thought that was kind of a re- wasted resource. If he if he was able to throw that one pitch by everybody, why not see how he d- did as a starter, which I think is a more valuable resource than a closer. But maybe that was the best way to get some longevity out of his career. Yeah, and the fact that he it, it was just he was so good that it was amazing to see him fail. And so you'll recall that in the 2000 was it 2003 yeah it was 2003 they of course beat the Red Sox they break our hearts but they go to the World Series and they lose when Mariano blows a save and and I believe threw the ball into center field after fielding a comebacker all hell broke loose and the 
Diamondbacks end up beating him. Remember that? Yeah, Crazy. but even that was a little fluky. Like they had oh, a single that him. just got over the shortstop at one. It was like broken bat. Like you couldn't get him by just hammering the ball. It would have to be a couple of fluky things on top of each other to get a run in. Exactly. Like Bill Miller in unlikely fashion, smashing the ball up the middle. Yeah. Anyway, question number two for you, Dan. Should balls and strikes be called by laser technology instead of humans? Now, I've heard this actually happened recently. It, maybe you heard it as well in a minor league game where they essentially the umpire was there to report news from the artificial intelligence robot calling the balls and strikes. What are your thoughts on this? So I am usually somebody who would say, let's get it right. Who cares how you do it? And I think the laser technology is more accurate than humans behind home plate, obviously. But one of these, one of the things I've really been enjoying lately, I don't know if you're familiar with John Boy Media. Nope. He basically posts videos of arguments between managers and umpires, mm -hmm. and he's a lip reader. <laughs> and he'll break these things down. I found myself at night, you're watching TV, and then I'll get stuck just looking at all these arguments between these legendary <laughs> managers and umpires or players and umpires. Oh, and he I, goes back in time. Yeah, yeah. He'll oh, show, okay. yeah, he'll show like stuff that's 10 years old, Tony La Russa, Sparky Anderson, all these guys arguing with umpires. And I just love when he does the lip reading and you're hearing what they're saying. It's, and I think something would be lost if you took that out of baseball. I love those interactions when a manager comes out. He's trying to get kicked out to pump up his team or he just wants out of there. It's it's a good part of baseball. I think I'd miss it if they do the laser technology. So I'm going to say no on laser technology. Yeah, I'm completely torn on it. So I hate to be wishy-washy. But on the one hand, the, the best argument I've always heard for something like this is, like, do you want at the Olympics a referee standing at the finish line of the 100-meter dash and having the result be whether he can hit the button at the right time to time the people? No, of course you don't. You just want you want it to be the absolute accurate time of that sprinter. So, like you said, you want to get it right. The, my problem is I just I'm having trouble picturing it. Right? I'm having trouble like with the. I feel like the batters will argue even if they know it's coming from a computer. <laughs> right? No, when you're saying it, I'm picturing yeah, that. Right. Like, all of a sudden, a strike goes up on the scoreboard, and the yeah. player just starts screaming, yeah. and you're like, who are you arguing with? Yeah, so I feel like maybe you do need a human there. So, I don't know, but it, it might be coming. It'll be coming in experimental fashion. I'm sure it already is, but at any rate. All right, we move on. The final question for three up, three down. Which player who is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame would you like to induct if you had this magical power? even if it is only for your own personal sentimental reasons or any reasons. I'm going to go Barry Bonds because I think it is too difficult and I think it's impossible to say this guy did st steroids. I know for a fact this guy didn't do steroids. We're going to induct him. There's been some guys in the last few years that are like, I don't know that he didn't do steroids. A guy like Scott Rowland gets in and you're like, Scott Rowland is in the Hall of Fame and Barry Bonds is not. Yeah. That's insane. Some of Barry Bonds' best seasons are just, you look at stats and it's like, he had more home runs than swings and misses. It's just insane. He was such a great player. Obviously, the steroids boosted him in the latter second half of his career. But if it's a Hall of Fame, he's probably the most famous or best baseball player of all time. He should be in there. Maybe you put a little something under his plaque that says he was he never tested positive yeah, right see, it's that's, just that's, that's just the that's book the that came out about him exactly. and victor conti and all that so yeah i'd put barry bonds in there yeah i don't 
I don't know if ultimately you'll really even need the asterisks because, well, I mean, compare it to football. So Julian Edelman had a suspension for PEDs, right? I'm pretty sure he did. It was like four games. Rodney or Harrison definitely did. Yeah, Rodney Harrison. Edelman might have. Yep. So there have been. My point is, there have been star players that that have tested positive for PEDs. It should come as absolutely no shock to us that football players use PEDs. I mean, I mean, compare what they do to what baseball players do, and the toll on their body and everything. So fine. Has history judged Julian Edelman as a cheater? Well, I mean, some people would say all Patriots are cheaters, but. My my point is for not the most, for the PEDs. Yeah. Well, right. Well, right. There you go. So, but I think, and why? So why do football fans forgive, or or maybe you don't forgive? You know what? He got penalized. He sat his four games. Now Bonds never got penalized. So whose fault is that? Is it Bonds's fault? Was he supposed to penalize himself? No. MLB didn't police it properly. If they had policed it properly, then it's a different conversation, right? It was part, right. and sadly, it was barely enforced it was at first it was barely illegal and then when it finally was illegal it was barely enforced and like david ortiz tested positive before they started suspending guys it was like that test season where they just wanted to see what percentage of the players were actually taking peds he supposedly tested positive that year but i think he gets left off the hook because he's just a great guy and everybody loves him and he's a legendary player and i'm not saying take him out of the hall of fame i'm saying put barry bonds in the hall of fame Absolutely right. Yeah, I'm with you. If I have to have a, if I was to throw in a sentimental candidate, it would probably be Dwight Evans. He was always my favorite. And if you read enough statistical analysis, then you can convince yourself that Dwight Evans belongs in the Hall of Fame. But you could also argue it the other way. He's he's borderline at best, but I loved watching him play. I I have actually read the case for Dwight Evans. One of my former colleagues, I I was working at WEI a long time ago when Kirk Minahan was there and he did Mm -hmm. a big column on Dwight Evans. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely convincing. I, I was convinced by the end of the he was, uh, column. He was pro Dewey, obviously. He definitely was, yep. Yeah. Just to back up what you were saying about Bonds. So in 2002, Bonds broke the record for walks. He he walked 177 times, breaking a longstanding mark that Babe Ruth set of 170. But then in 2004, okay, so he just set the record 177 times. So three years later in 2004, he walked 232 times, <laughs> 232 times. And that was the season he hit 70, 72 home runs, 73 home runs. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there was up. a stat that he had more intentional walks in one of those seasons than I think like 24 franchises combined over the course of that season, which, I mean, you're, you got to have a, a pretty, sl- but I mean, there's situations second and third, one out, you're going to put somebody on or a runner on second. You need a double play. Like, there are plenty of situations. It doesn't matter who's at the plate. You're going to issue an intentional walk. But he just happened to draw more than 25 franchises. Exactly right. And he has been walked intentionally with the bases loaded. I know that, that yes. happened, which yeah, is, I remember is just that. amazing. And just to set the record straight, I, I misspoke before. And it was 2001, the first season I mentioned when he broke the record for walks. That was the season he hit 73 home runs. And as it happened, 2004, he, quote-unquote, only hit 45 home runs. But maybe that's because 
he only saw 45 strikes that year because he walked 230, 232 times. He played in 147 games. He only had 373 at-bats because because of the plate appearance. Thing. Yeah, yeah, there was a season where they would just try to pitch around him. It's like breaking stuff low and away, and then they'd make one mistake, and you're like, man, you cannot get a mistake by him. It's it's going to end up in McCovey Cove. Yeah, and and you just have to honor that greatness yes we 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 look at photos before so-called before and after photos of bonds it's pretty obvious he was taking more than flintstones vitamins but the whole league was come on let's get over it yeah put them all in there mcguire all all those guys absolutely well that concludes another edition of three up three down we have asked the fans dan and you have passed with flying colors congratulations you may now have your hot dog and soda thank you Thanks to Larry Lucchino for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.